you remain standing in honor of God's word. And we're going over to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. And I'm going to begin in verse 1. The scripture says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Can you say amen? Today I want to continue zeroing in on what we started to look into last week. Verse number 2, which says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. We began to look at the keys to blessed rest because that's what David is communicating to us in this verse. And today's key for blessed rest is overcoming the mean green one. And I'm not talking about Mr. Grinch. I'm talking about Mr. Envy. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your power, by your Holy Spirit, through your word, to every single heart we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. As we come to our text today, there is a noticeable shift from verse 1 to verse 2. In verse number 1, we find David being very poetical. The Lord is my shepherd. But in verse number 2, He goes from a poet to a painter, from a wordsmith to an artist who uses his words to paint a picture. And the picture he paints in verse number two with his words is one of tranquility. As we hear the verse, our hearts race and our minds race off to a picturesque place of peace. If you're like me, maybe your, your mind, when you hear those words, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. Maybe in your mind, you, you get the picture of this, this homestead, this farm. You know, perhaps there are horses and cattle off in the distance, mountains in the background, lilies in the field. But whatever picture comes into your mind, when you hear those words, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. It's supposed to, and it's intended to, and I believe it connects with our hearts and gives us that picture of tranquility. And oh, how we need that type of peace. Because we need rest for our souls, don't we? We need rest from analyzing and speculating and theorizing and solving problems and worry and anxiety and busyness and burdens and all that kind of stuff. We need rest not just for our overworked bodies, but for our bombarded minds and and souls. David's message in this metaphor of sheep and shepherd is that there is only one place that you and I can find true rest for our souls, and that is in the shepherd of our soul, Jesus Christ. And if you remember from last week, we talked about the only way that sheep will lie down. We say that sheep are not naturally predisposed to lie down. They'll stay up on their feet. They're skittish the whole time, unless they are free from four things. And we said those four things are predators, or enemies, inner interherd conflict, parasites, and hunger. Problem is sheep can't get free from any of those things on their own. They need a shepherd to do that. They are totally dependent upon the consistent, compassionate, and all-encompassing care of the shepherd in order to find security and rest. 
Same is true for you and I. There's only one place for you and I to get rest for our weary souls. We can't find it in all the places we search for it, and we can't find it in another relationship or a job or in a bottle or in a habit or anything like that. There is truly only one place that we can find rest for our souls, and that is in the good shepherd of our soul, Jesus Christ. And last week, as I said, we looked at the first key to blessed rest, and, and that was the presence of the Savior. When, when the sheep realize that the shepherd is nearby, they feel safe and secure from all of the predators. But the second key that I want to begin to talk about revolves around the second thing that sheep need to be free from, and that is interherd conflict. Interestingly enough, for such sheepish animals, sheep have a very, very kind of controlling way about them. Matter of fact, uh, sheep have actually a lot of interherd conflict. Like all animals, there is an order of dominance in sheep and within their, their group. And matter of fact, chickens, as you know, they have a pecking order. And cattle have what's called a horning order. But sheep have what's called a butting order. They butt one another. And, and, and what a budding order is, is when a, an old you who has dominated the flock, now you can see why sheep are very much like us human beings, because we know it's not grandpa's house, it's not dad's house, it's grandma's house. The old you dominates the house, doesn't she? Anyway, I'm just playing with you all. But an old you, what normally happens is they will try to maintain their position of prestige and dominance within the herd. And what they will do is they will literally butt other lambs and use out of the way to maintain their dominance over the best grazing areas. And succeeding in precise order, the other sheep also maintain their position of prestige with similar tactics. They butt each other around. And, and it's kind of like the strongest, you know, butts everybody else out of the way. And then the next strongest, and then the next strongest, and the next strongest. And, and because of this rivalry, there is tension and competition for status and self-assertion, and there is always friction in the flock. Consequently, the sheep cannot lie down to rest in contentment. They must always stand up and be ready to defend their turf, to contest for their rights and to challenge other sheep. It's only when the shepherd shows up that the budding stops and all of the sheep feel safe and secure. What is the human parallel that drives such behavior of butting one another, of pushing each other out of the way in order to maintain prestige and dominance in the best grazing areas that this world has to offer. It is the mean green one, envy. Green is a hot cutler in the fashion world. So is orange, by the way. Green looks great on the winners of the Masters. Green looks great on the Green Bay Packers. Looks great on St. Patrick's Day. It's unbelievable on a $100 bill, right? But it's awful on the soul. And one of the sneaky side effects is that it steals our rest. What is envy? It's being sad over somebody else's successes and glad over their failures. Therefore, we try to butt people out of the way to protect the best grazing places and maintain our social status. It's like the two store owners. They were in constant competition with one another. They had stores across the street from one another. 
And they would stay at the doors and they would kind of just cheer in each other's face as more customers came into one than the other. It was such a heavy competition that God sent an angel down there to teach him a lesson. He pulled one of the store owners aside and he said to him, God sent me here to teach you a lesson. He said, you could ask for anything you want and God's going to give it to you. But just so you know, your competition across the street is going to get double. So you can ask for wealth and God will give it to you, but they're going to get double. You can ask for a long life, and God's going to give it to you, but they're going to get double. You can ask for customers to come in so much so that you have too many customers you can't serve them, but they're going to get double. And the guy kind of puts his head down, and he thinks for a minute, what should I ask for? What should I ask for? He says, make me blind in one eye. (laughs) That That is envy at its height. Being glad over somebody's failures. Being happy over somebody's failures and sad over their successes. No wonder why Shakespeare called envy the green-eyed monster. Perhaps in our lives it's a little bit more subtle. Perhaps we're not looking in our lives in order to wish blindness on anybody. Perhaps envy is displayed in your life as having to keep up with the Joneses. Perhaps it's that feeling of euphoria when, when you score better on a standardized achievement test or your kid scores better on college exams than all your other friends' kids and you kind of stick your chest out like my kid is better than yours. Perhaps it's that you need to be the prettiest in the group in better shape than all of your buddies. Have a better job and make more money than your siblings do or have the highest position amongst all your peers. Perhaps you look forward to the day where you can go back to your high school reunion and tell everybody what you do because you think it's so much better than what everybody else does. And in our attempt to outshine each other and to do better for all of the wrong reasons, we find our souls overburdened. And instead of being blessed with rest, we lie awake at night pursuing all of the things that we want, all because We want to keep up with everybody else. Scripture calls the green-eyed monster that prevents us from resting in God's green pastures deadly. In actuality, it listed amongst the seven deadly things or the seven things that God hates. We call them the seven deadly sins. And they're found in Proverbs chapter 6, verse number 16. And I want to share just the first portion of that text with you. It says, there are six things the Lord hates. Seven things that are detestable to him. And the first one on the list is haughty eyes. Haughty eye. What's a haughty eye? A haughty eye is envy. It is us being sad over the successes of other people and happy about their failures. And it is the first thing that God says that he hates. And it leads to destruction in our own lives. We think that somehow, some way, it gives us a one-up on everybody else. But in reality, it hurts us in so many ways. Remember Snow White. The evil witch, right? She wanted, to, she wanted to be the fairest in the land. She was envious of Snow White's beauty. And in her attempt to kill Snow White, she fell off a cliff. If you don't like that story, there are plenty in the Bible. Cain and Abel, envy, ended in murder. Miriam and Moses, envy, ended in Miriam getting leprosy. What we think is something that kind of motivates us and keeps us going in actuality has a very poisonous effect on our soul. Make no mistake about it. Envious is poisonous in every way, and it makes our soul so sick that we will lose rest. 
Perhaps when David was painting this picturesque scene, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. Perhaps he was thinking of his up-close and personal look at envy when he saw it at work in the life of his father-in-law. Who is his father-in-law? Saul. The king that he took over for. Many of us, many times we don't remember that little detail about the, in the Bible, but Saul was David's father-in-law. David married his daughter. Matter of fact, when David defeated Goliath, one of the things that motivated him to go out and defeat Goliath was the promise of getting the king's daughter's hand in marriage. And so he wound up marrying Saul's daughter. And Saul became very envious of David. Let's go ahead and delve into that story. 1 Samuel chapter number 18, if you're following along. 1 Samuel chapter number 18, beginning in verse 5, it says, So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he behaved wisely. And Saul sent him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it happened... As they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines, that the woman had come out and all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the woman sang and they danced and they said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they only ascribe thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed haughty eyes. He eyed David from that day forward, and it happened on the next day that a distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand, as at other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Verse number 9, Saul eyed David. The green-eyed Monster. Three reasons why the green-eyed monster steals our rest. Number one, because envy devalues our self-worth. What is it that caused Saul to envy or to eye David? It was the song. The song that David killed his tens of thousands, but Saul, in his mind, only his thousands. Now, Saul was a war hero in and of himself. He was a mighty man of war. I mean, he had accomplishments, and he got prizes and badges and purple hearts and all of those kind of things. And and he was credited with literally killing thousands of people. He had a lot to be grateful for. He had a big shine on his own life, but he got his self-worth from the wrong place. came from comparison. Instead of Christ. And so instead of him being able to to enjoy the things that God had blessed his life with, he compared himself to David and he felt bad about himself because David in his mind was a better warrior than him. Instead of feeling validated by his own accomplishments, he felt inferior because of comparing himself. And listen to what the Bible says about comparison. Second. Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. 
But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Have you ever done that? You were happy about your house till you went over your friends. You were happy about your spouse till you met your friends. You were happy about your job till you heard your friend talking about theirs. You were happy about your salary till your friend told you how much they make. You were happy about all of the things that you had until you compared them to what somebody else had. And that made you stay up thinking about it. And you robbed, you were robbed of your rest. This is Saul and this is David. Saul's especially bothered by David because David has turned out to be good at something where Saul garners his self-worth from. Before David was a war hero, David was Saul's harpist. And Saul loved David as a harpist. He thought he was all that. I mean, he would just be so excited about how David was able to play the harp. He would call in everybody, you know, the butler, the baker, the candlestick maker. Come on in here. Listen to this kid play that harp. He's the next Bieber. He's got an album in his future. I mean, we ought to fund this whole thing for him. Look at this kid. He's amazing, my son-in-law who plays the harp. But as soon as he became the son-in-law who is good at war, the son-in-law who can outdo him on the battlefield. He was no longer able to celebrate David's successes. Envy is an interesting thing because nobody really gets envious of people who are good at stuff that you don't derive your self-worth from. You know, doctors don't get envious of good gardeners. They're like, oh, man, that guy is such a good gardener. I stink as a doctor. Soldiers don't get envious of good carpenters. Execs, execs don't get envious of vets. Kings don't get envious of musicians. But war heroes get envious of war heroes. And if you want to know how this thing touches everybody, you should hang around preachers. They are the most envious group of people that I've ever met in my entire life. They're cool if they got a big church and you got a small church. They're like, oh, yeah, let me teach you a few things. But as soon as they find out your church is as big or bigger than theirs, they go on to the next person. Because we get our sense of self-worth from certain things. And when we feel like others are achieving equally or better, somehow we feel like we are less than. And the reason why we feel are less than is because we are deriving our self-worth from all of the wrong places. Not comparison but Christ. Secondly, the second reason why envy steals our rest is because envy opens the door for evil. Matter of fact, look at James chapter 3, verse number 14. It says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. The wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every." Evil thing are there. What's that mean? It means that envy opens the door for the devil in our lives. You can see it in the story of David and Saul. I want you to watch the progression of evil in the life of Saul because of envy. The first thing we find out, verse number eight, is Saul gets very angry 
And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed only thousands. At first, he gets angry. Right? He hears the song. It bothers him. It bothers him. It bothers him. He keeps hearing the song. And eventually, he's not just bothered by it, but he's angry by it. And I want you to know what happens next. The anger leads to suspicion. The end of verse number 8 says, now what more can he have but the kingdom? So he goes from anger to suspicion. The evil is getting worse. Because what envy does is it opens the door for evil in our lives. And then the suspicion turns into fear. Verse number 12, now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. And the fear turned into five attempts on David's life. Turned into murder. Look at it again, verse number 10. So David played music with his hand as other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear for, he said, I will pin him to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. There were three more attempts on his life. And every time he failed. Why did this progression happen? Because envy opens the door for evil. It invited an evil spirit into his life. It invited anger into his life, suspicion into his life, and eventually murder into his life. Because where there is envy, there is confusion in every evil thing. Envy opens the doorway to inviting evil in our lives. And notice this. There's one little detail given here in verse 10 again. And it happened the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. Now, people say, well, how could God do that to Saul? God was dealing with Saul's heart, and it was distressing him. He was dealing with the envy. He was trying to tell Saul, listen, you're getting your value. You're getting your worth from all the wrong places. And Saul couldn't deal with it. It was eating him alive. So much so that he couldn't sleep. It stole his rest. And the reason why it stole his rest is because he kept thinking about what David has and how good David is instead of what God blessed him with. And he needed David to play him the harp in order to rest. But perhaps more importantly, envy steals our rest because it separates us from the shepherd. Verse number 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. God longs to fellowship with us, to cover us, to protect us, to bless us, to guide us, to lead us, to deliver us, to reward us, to love us, to fill us with joy, peace, and power. God loves to do this, but envy distances us from God. It's U-L-G-Y. You ain't got no alibi. It's ugly. Envy is an ugly, ugly thing. There's no redeeming features about envy like other sins. Other sins have a little give back, at least at the beginning. For instance, if we lust, we might find some momentary pleasure. If we're glutton, we get to eat a big meal. If we're lazy, we get some rest. If we're angry, we get a few moments of psychological pleasure when we blow our top. But what's the reward of envy. It's a self-mutilating sin, isn't it? It's like a rat being trapped. You know, the, the, the thing springs back when he tries to get the cheese. In order to get free, he gnaws off his leg. There's no rewards to envy. So how do we 
break free? How do we overcome the evil of this green monster? How do we get our rest by not worrying about comparing ourselves to what other people have and looking on TV at everything? You know, lifestyles of the rich and famous. MTV Cribs, that's me, that's me. We spend our whole life pursuing these things, lusting after them because of the envy that somehow encapsulates us. There's one easy answer. Eyes off others. Eyes on Jesus. I mean, I can stop right there. Because that is the solution in a nutshell. Eyes off others and eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes off of what others have and onto Jesus and what he's blessed you with. Get your eyes off of where others are and get your eyes on Jesus and where he wants to take you or where he has elevated you to. Get your eyes off of their blessings and look on the blessings that God has given you because when the shepherd shows up, all the sheep stop butting one another because their, their eyes get fixed on the shepherd. Remember, Peter, when your eyes are on Jesus, you can walk on water. When your eyes are on other things, you sink in the storms of life. So let me give you a few things that happen when your eyes are on Jesus. A few things that come to pass when we keep them firmly fixed on the Lord. Number one, you get your self-worth from the shepherd. When your eyes are on Jesus, no longer is your self-worth because you're doing better than somebody else. No longer do you look at it and say, oh, I'm smart because they got 1,100 on their SATs and I got 1,400. Well, well, I'm rich because they make 50,000 and I make 150,000. Well, I'm pretty because I get more looks than they get when we walk down the street. See, that's not what it's all about. Every sheep feels valuable when the shepherd shows up. Every sheep feels individually important and cared for. Every sheep knows that they are the one that he will leave the 99 and go after. When the shepherd shows up, the sheep fix their eyes on him. They get their self-worth from Christ and not from comparison. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves. Let's not devalue our self-worth by comparison. Our worth is not based on how we do compared to somebody else. Our worth is based upon, the worth of anything is based upon what somebody will pay for it. How much is a painting worth? What somebody will buy it for in the art gallery. How much is a Mercedes-Benz worth? Fifty dollars to $120,000, depending upon which version you buy. How much is a Honda worth? Fifty to fifty thousand dollars, depending. You can get a souped-up Honda, real nice, right? How much are all these things worth? Depends on how much somebody will pay from. Well, listen to what the Scripture says: First Peter chapter one, verse number eighteen. For you know that God paid a ransom for you to save you from your empty life that you inherited from your ancestors and the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver it was the precious blood of Christ the sinless spotless lamb of God come on somebody you know what God did God didn't chunk off a piece of one of the streets in heaven even though they're made of pure gold because you and I are worth more than that God didn't pay for us with one of the gates of heaven they're made out of pure pearls 
far more valuable than Mickey Moto pearls ever will be. But we are more valuable than that. God didn't chunk off a piece of the foundation of heaven, although they are the purest of all jewels. We're more valuable than that. You know what he did? He said, you're so valuable, I'll pay for you with the blood of Jesus. That is where your self-worth comes from. It comes from who you are in Christ and who God has created you to be. And if you'll get your eyes off other people and on the shepherd, you'll realize that's where it comes from. But secondly, when you fix your eyes on Jesus, you see others through the shepherd's eyes, through the shepherd's eyes. No more pretending to be happy about other people's blessings. Do you ever get around people like that? You know they ain't happy about your blessing. Even though they don't say anything wrong, you can tell when somebody is genuinely saying what they're saying. Or just, you know, oh, nice. Very nice. As opposed to excited about the blessings. When you fix your eyes on the shepherd, you don't see other sheep as competition. You see them as family. As team, as fellow brothers and sisters serving the same shepherd. And you root for them instead of rooting against them. When you fix your eyes on the shepherd, no more pretending to be happy at somebody else's blessing while secretly saying, why them and not me? That goes off in our head and our mind a whole lot. Matter of fact, listen to what Romans says. It says, be happy with those that are happy and weep with those who weep. Have you ever noticed it's easier to weep with people than it is to be happy with people? Somebody said you like right in there. Oh, I feel your pain, brother. I'm with you. Somebody's doing real well. You have to kind of motivate yourself to be happy about that. See, when we flip that script, we get our eyes focused on Jesus because they're not competition anymore. They're part of the same team. Matter of fact, when your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you can go what I call Jonathan on people. You remember Jonathan? Jonathan was Saul's son. He was groomed to be the next king. All his life, he probably dreamed about taking over for his father, that he would be the next king, that he's going to be the next king. And look, there are people going to serve me like that. I'm going to ride in chariots like that. I'm going to have you know, horses like that. I'm going to wear dashikis like that. Right? He's probably wondering about, dreaming about all these things. But God had other plans. Along comes David. And Jonathan and David become BFFs. They become the best of the best of friends. Interestingly enough, Jonathan realizes that God has called David to be Israel's next king. And you would think Jonathan would push back. You would think Jonathan would be for his father trying to kill David. Matter of fact, maybe one of the reasons why Saul wanted to kill David was envy and also so his son got the throne. But Jonathan wasn't having any of that. Matter of fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 17, Jonathan says to David, when he's on the run, when Saul's trying to kill him, don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. Watch this. And I'll be second to you. Can you be second? Matter of fact, can I tell you something? You can't ever be first until you're second. God will never allow you to be first until you're second. Serving is the preparation for leading. If you're not a good servant, how could you ever expect? And moreover, how could you ever expect other people to serve you well if you never serve them well? Right? Jonathan said, you know what? 
I'm cool because I don't look at you through envious eyes. I look at you because my eyes are on the shepherd. And so I see you through the lens of what the shepherd has. We're not competing with one another. We are collaborating with one another. We're not competing in order to see who's going to be first. We are collaborating in order to exalt the name of Jesus. We are working together on this. I'll serve you. It's not a comparison. It's not a competition. It's a collaboration. Genuine joy. At seeing somebody else blessed in their life. Now lastly, last thing I want to share with you. When you fix your eyes on the shepherd, eyes on Jesus, eyes off them, you stop seeing God as small. Listen to me carefully on this one. Envy's not a people problem. It's a God problem. Envy is not a people problem. It's a God problem. It's a problem with our perception of God. A perception of God that says he's limited. A perception that believes if God blesses you, that he is restricted in how he can bless me. That if he increases your wealth, he's left with less wealth than he originally had, and therefore my chances of being increased with wealth are diminished. If he gives you a good idea that his wisdom has been slightly depleted and my chances of getting a good idea goes down. That if he restores your marriage and increases your love for one another, that he has one less Cupid arrow in his tank, if you will, to shoot into my marriage. A perception that says if God shows you favor, that he might run out of favor or that might be my favor and then where am I going to be? Envy is the result of a perception of God. That he's limited. A perception that says that if God is limited or since God is limited, anytime you get something, my chances go down. To that end, can I introduce you for a moment to the God of the Bible? His goodness is limited, is, is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His provision needs no replenishment. His grace is more than enough. His blessings never run dry. His wisdom is a wellspring. His miracles never end. His power is ever-present. His peace is unparalleled. His word endures forever. His kingdom is without end. And his forgiveness is linked to a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. I want you to know that when you see God correctly instead of getting upset by my blessing, you get excited by what God is doing in somebody else's life because you realize he's an unlimited God. He's the one that said to Abraham, is there anything too hard for me? He's the one who issued the limitless challenge when he said, ask of me and I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. He's the one who said, I'm able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. When you realize God is limitless, you get excited about other people's blessings. Their blessing becomes evidence that your blessing is on the way. When he cares for them, it shows you that he cares for his sheep. That is, you are one of his sheep. And that if he did it for them, he'll do it for you. When you see somebody else get 
blessed. It should remind you that the good shepherd is involved in the life of his sheep. It means that if he did it for them, he'll do it for you. That's why we need each other's testimony. Your testimony doesn't make me sad. Your testimony gets me excited. We overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. The reason why I'm sharing with you is not so you can look and say, ah, look at him. It's so that you can say, ah, look at God. If God did it for him and he's the same yesterday, today and forever, God will do it for me. I'm not worried about how blessed you are. I know that the same God that blessed you is the same God that loves me. See, we need to understand that blessing, that envy, it's a God problem. It's not a people problem. You got your eyes on the wrong thing. Your eyes were on Jesus. You feel great. I love going to other ministries that have so much more than we have. I love it. I walk around and I think, God, look at this. Woo! God, you could do that. I guess I need to increase my vision. I guess I need to start believing bigger. There's an, an excitement that happens when you see God on that level. What's the solution to rest of interheard conflict? Eyes off them. Eyes on Jesus. Eyes off them. Eyes on Jesus.